Morning, everyone. Lovely to see you all this morning. Lovely for one of my uh, periodic visits to this beautiful fellowship at GAC. Let me uh, lead us briefly in prayer and uh, we'll get stuck into this wonderful little cracker of a passage in Matthew chapter 8. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your Son, our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who calls us uh, as your children to become more and more like him. And we pray that as we consider your word this morning in Matthew 8, in the power of your Holy Spirit, you would indeed uh, help us to tremble and rejoice at your word and therefore become more like him. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. No matter what stage of the Christian walk you may be in, and even if you haven't begun it yet, something that I think can be really helpful is to periodically do some sober and careful reflection on what it is that we believe. When I say believe, I mean what it is we genuinely, truly, in our heart of hearts, believe. Near the start of the year is a sensible time as any to do that, as we... uh, uh, probably worked out last week, we've uh, recommenced our series in the Gospel of Matthew uh, because Christianity is primarily about a person, Jesus Christ, and to be refreshed in our thinking about who He is and therefore what we are on about as Christians and as a church uh, will hold us in good stead as the year progresses. As a matter of fact, um, spoiler alert, I think our preaching program is uh, that we're going to do our Matthew Gospel at term one for the next three years or four years or something like that. Uh, So to that end, and perhaps as a bit of a warm-up for what we're going to learn about Jesus in Matthew's Gospel today, I'm going to lead us in a little self-reflection exercise that you can choose to take part in or not. What I'm going to do is I'm going to put up a series of statements about the faith that the Bible holds as being true and important, similar to, to statements in a creed, I guess. And each of us, in the quietness of our mind and heart, can consider whether or not we truly, genuinely believe these things. That is, do we believe them in our hearts? Are we settled in heart and minds that these things are true? Here we go. First one uh, is that there is one true God who happens to be the creator of heaven and earth. Are we settled in heart and mind that this is true? Uh, that he is a complex unity or a triune God. He is one God who is Father, Son and Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. Are we settled in our heart and mind that this is true, that we believe this? Uh, Jesus Christ endured the wrath of God against sin. It was a sin-bearing death. He suffered and died on the cross on account of our sins. Do we believe this in our hearts? Uh, Jesus rose bodily from the dead and ascended into heaven. He was dead, 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 literally, physically, and he literally, physically, not just as a metaphor, was raised to new life with a new body, uh, or a resurrection body to be more accurate, and he ascended into heaven. Do we believe this? Uh, God, the Holy Spirit, is uh, what Jesus pours out, who Jesus pours out on those he chooses. 
Do we believe this in our heart? Uh, God the Holy Spirit enables us to know Jesus as Lord and Saviour. That is, he, know, he enables repentance and faith and ongoing growth, or to use a fancy theological term, sanctification. Do we believe this? Uh, the day has been set, even though none of us know when it is, it could be today, it could be in a thousand years, but the day has been set when Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead, that is, he'll return to save his people, the living, and condemn those who have remained in rebellion against him. Do we believe this? If in your heart of hearts you believe these things, then there are two things that I want to say. First, I'm going to present you with wonderful news. It is, of course, the children of God who believe these things those who have been saved from the judgment to come and those for whom Jesus is Lord and Saviour. Christians believe these things. But secondly, I'm going to present you all with a problem. Put simply, the problem is that Satan, the devil, the father of lies who is at work in the disobedient, also 100% believes absolutely everything on this list. It's possible to believe these things and to be an enemy, even the enemy of Jesus. Which begs the obvious question, what then makes the difference between the, the Christian and the devil in terms of belief? Well, in one sense, logically, it must be the case that there's something beyond belief that makes for the difference between worshipper and enemy. One obvious one comes in the letter of James that teaches us that saving faith Saving belief will always produce good deeds in the life of the believer. It will change the person, they'll become more like Jesus. We are saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. But that's one answer of many that the Bible gives. If you had to give a general answer or a summary of what the Bible teaches, distinguishes worshipper and enemy beyond mere belief, I think one of the best ones you can come up with is discipleship. A disciple is someone who learns from Jesus with the aim of becoming like him. And in today's little cracker of a passage from Matthew's Gospel, we learn some of the most basic and important characteristics of true discipleship. The first simple lesson is that being not just a believer but a disciple of Jesus is not about gaining comfort or worldly status. Our section begins, and I'll put the verses on the screen as well. Verse 18, when Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Uh, hopefully you remember from last week, Jesus had been doing a lot of healing miracles and exorcisms, which saw many crowds show up. But as is often the case with Jesus, he acts to divide his hearers between those who might just want to see something amazing or interesting and those who genuinely wish to follow him. So, when he sees the crowds, he basically says, well, let's move on to the next town, i.e., and presumably we'll see who's going to put their money where their mouth is and, and actually follow him. In Matthew's account of this event, there are two potential contenders. The first is an unlikely contender because he belongs to a group of people who, gen generally speaking, are in conflict with Jesus. Uh, that is, he's a Jewish religious leader, one of the teachers of the law, 
who also would have been uh, known as a scribe. Just after Jesus says it's time to move on, verse 19, then a teacher of the law came to him and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, on first reading, we think, wow, that's pretty good. This guy, even though he's a teacher of the law, has just become a genuine disciple of Christ. But then you notice there's something possibly a bit cavalier in this man's approach. He calls Jesus teacher, which is absolutely right. To be a disciple is to be taught by Jesus. Yet it's the same title that the scribe himself would have had. People usually would have called him teacher. And notice that what he says could easily be interpreted as a rather bold pronouncement. He doesn't ask permission, he simply asserts that I will go with you wherever you go. We're right to be wondering if this guy's attitude is something along the lines of, I'm an important person, so my endorsement of you, Jesus, will be really helpful. Or perhaps something like, as a teacher of the law, I know what it is to be absolutely committed, Jesus, so I'll be absolutely committed to you, I'll follow you wherever you go. In any event, we know by the way Jesus responds, that this scribe does need to learn something vitally important if he's going to be a genuine disciple. We know that because, well, verse 20, Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Put simply, you need to think very carefully before making the bold pronouncement that you'll follow me anywhere because the road I'm taking is not the road of comfort, is not the road of worldly status, the kind of things the scribe would have been used to. And to us, to you and me, who happen to live in extreme comfort and luxury, there could hardly be a more grating yet pertinent warning. How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus himself has said. For our wealth makes it so hard to give up the comfortable den and the comfortable nest and to follow the Son of Man who has no place to lay his head. It can be and often is and ought to be financially wise to say own your own home. But to make that the great Australian dream is simply incompatible with the kind of discipleship that Jesus envisages. The writer to the Hebrews would praise the early Jewish church for joyfully accepting the confiscation of their goods and property on account of their devotion to the Lord who would give them lasting possessions in heaven, though not on earth. Worldly comfort is not part of the deal for the disciples of Jesus. Now, I need to hasten to add there that Jesus at one point, even in this gospel and definitely in Mark, would say anyone who's given up their homes, their families, whatever, won't fail to receive much more brothers, mothers, homes, fields in this age. There is something excellent 
and beneficial, something I personally have absolutely delighted in uh, about being a disciple of Jesus. I remember when our first uh, son was born, Eli, for two months, we didn't cook a single meal because people from church just kept bringing him around, right? The, the, the church family is one of the most wonderful and attractive things about being a disciple of Jesus. But that also, in the same breath, Jesus says, along with such things, persecution, and in the age to come, eternal life. Those things aren't the reason for being a disciple. They're not part of the deal of discipleship. They're one of the wonderful consequences thereof. And it's why the prosperity gospel, which insists that being a follower of Jesus ought to result in health and wealth and success in this age, is such an insidious false teaching that produces false disciples. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In the positive, it's why suffering and hardship, uh, when they come your way as a follower of Jesus, mean that you don't need to fear that your discipleship has been in vain or is wrong. On the, con- on the contrary, your discomfort can actually further solidify you identifying with the suffering Son of Man, who in this world has nowhere to lay his head. In reality, a Christian is always in the presence of Jesus. But experientially, to have, as the hymn writer would call it, just a closer walk with him is often best achieved by enduring hardship and suffering on account of sticking to your gospel priorities. Just last week in Victoria, a deplorable, frankly, piece of legislation came into effect. One that whereby if a person with an unwanted same-sex attraction, asks a Christian to pray for them in such a way that if there's even a hint that the conversation or the prayer does anything but unconditionally affirm and encourage that same-sex attraction, the Christian is liable to fine and imprisonment up to 10 years. I will not be surprised that if in the near future, a Victorian Christian, probably a minister, finds themselves fined or in jail. However, I will praise God and rejoice on behalf of that minister because such discomfort, such blatant persecution will grow them in their relational knowledge of Jesus who had no place to lay his head. The second characteristic of genuine discipleship we're taught is that following Jesus is an all or nothing commitment. Either being his disciple is the absolute highest priority or else you're not his disciple at all. There is to be no greater priority. You guys know that uh, one of the hats I wear is youth and young adults ministry in our uh, parish and um, at a, a Bible study not long ago with some younger and therefore more direct um, adults. Uh, I, I was speaking something about this, and one of them just piped up, said, "Oh, so it's basically uh, go hard or go to hell." <laughs> well, yeah, you, it's sort of hard to forget that, but it's actually right. Verse twenty-one. Another disciple said to him, "Lord, first let me go and bury my father." 
Notice, first of all, that this person is already a disciple, someone who is committed to following Jesus, learning from Jesus so as to become like him. And presumably, before Jesus hops on the boat, this disciple needs to do what is easily one of the most important worldly duties anyone in that time and culture could ever possibly do, bury his, I assume, recently deceased or about to be deceased, father. Uh, Many of you guys know that I'm a a Jew in terms of upbringing and I can tell you in Jewish tradition you actually honour the person by getting the body in the ground quickly. That's still the case today. Uh, For it's the body that's left to the elements that's considered to be under the righteous judgment of God. If ever there could be one priority for which discipleship could temporarily be put on hold, it will be for this person to bury his dad. And probably because it's such a seemingly understandable thing to make a concession for, Jesus, who only ever speaks the truth for our good, gives the most unmistakable no to this request. Verse 22, but Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Notice that the dead here are those who are not following Jesus. Even the most extremely important priority that one could have is not even to give temporary suspension in following Jesus as a disciple. Let those who are not followers of Jesus deal with that. Let the spiritually dead deal with the literally dead. It is very easy and I know this this is true of myself, but it is very easy for disciples of Jesus to have a just let me do this first kind of attitude. Just let me get my work situation sorted out first and then I'll get proactive in serving the Lord as best I can. Just let me get married first, then I'll get proactive in serving the Lord as best I can. Let my child do well at school or their HSC first, then I'll let them be more proactive in serving the Lord. One of the wonderful things about the term disciple, which is the word used here of this man, is that it rightly implies that one always has something to learn. This fellow who wants to bury his father is a learner, he is a disciple, but one who needs to grow in his understanding of what it means not only to simply believe, but to truly follow Jesus. That's comforting to me and it's comforting to us because it suggests that we can struggle with knowing how to be Jesus' followers. It's about progress, not perfection. But what would make for true discipleship in the case of this fellow who wants to bury his father is that he'd hear and act on those drastic words of Jesus, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. And in the very next verse, when it says Jesus got onto the boat and his disciples followed him, this fellow would have therefore been among their number. The lesson learned would simply be that true discipleship is costly and committed. True discipleship is costly and is committed. Uh, Some of you have heard my testimony, many of you won't. Uh, I was 19 when I became a disciple of Jesus. Uh, My Jewish uncle, who had become a follower of Jesus, uh, 
explain to me in no uncertain terms the gospel. Yes, there is a God, which was news to me, I was atheist. Yes, there is a God, and uh, you and all people naturally have rebelled against Him, ignored Him, rejected Him, whether that's actively or passively, that's what you've done. He's a just and holy God, He won't let that rebellion remain, He will punish it, there's death and judgment. But He's a loving God who sent His Son Jesus into the world to take that judgment, to take that punishment when He died on the cross. God raised up Jesus and appointed Him uh, by His resurrection as ruler and Lord, so that all people everywhere have a choice. You can remain in your rebellion or you can turn and put your faith in Jesus and be saved. I remember hearing this for the first time and I said, I want to put my faith in Jesus and be saved. You know what my uncle's response was? No. No. He'd written this stuff down on a piece of paper, he folded up the paper and gave it to me and he said, you need to think about this, mull over it, look at the passages and wait to see if you're actually sure. That was absolutely brilliant that he did that for two reasons. Number one, it showed a right trust and a right theological understanding that God is the God of election. If I was going to be saved, I would be saved no matter what. God, by His Spirit, uh, would regenerate me, allow me to have my faith in Christ. Uh, that was really helpful. But the second thing, the second reason that was especially helpful, and I knew this because I asked him about it later, he said, you don't want to make a hyped, spur-of-the-moment decision because you need to come to understand that true discipleship is not easy. It's costly. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. Maybe you've never properly thought this through. Or maybe you recognize there's something you are holding on to, something you don't want to give up in order to progress in your discipleship or indeed to commence your discipleship. But why would one commit themselves to following Jesus when it's such an extreme, all or nothing kind of deal? When he's the kind of leader that says, let the dead bury their own dead, you come and follow me. Foxes have holes, but no, no comfort for the Son of Man. Why would one commit themselves to this? Well, that's actually a pretty simple answer. Even though the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head, his journey would indeed come to an end. Interestingly, the only other time in the Bible where the phrase, lay his head, occurs in the original language, happens to be John chapter 19, verse 13, when Jesus is hanging on the cross. It says, when he had received the drink, which someone offered him when he was dying on the cross... Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head, or literally the same phrase, he lay his head and gave up his spirit. The great discomfort, the great lack of worldly status, the great and unrivaled commitment that led Jesus to pay the greatest cost of dying on the cross was all done such that you and I can one day come to that joyful rest in the presence of God without having to face His judgment for our many sins and failings. Yes, to follow Jesus is uncomfortable and is costly. But what good is it to gain even the whole world, yet forfeit your soul? Briefly, by way of implications then, you'll notice that labels 
uh, like radical and extremist when applied to religious uh, ideologies or systems, uh, generally a derogatory term. Uh, as a matter of fact, I remember on the news years ago, there was a, a man who was accused of something and uh, his mother was being interviewed while he was in court and she was obviously defending him and she said, he would never have done whatever the thing was, he's a Christian. And by the way, he's not just one of those born-again Christians, he's an Anglican. <laughs> Uh, which made me suspect his uh, guilt even more. Uh, you can't actually be a Christian unless you're born again. No one can enter the kingdom unless they're born again, Jesus teaches. And uh, it sort of demonstrated that people have this notion that if you're one of the radicals, if you're like a born again one, then you know, you're, you're a nutbag, you're, you're crazy or something like that. Uh, I think we need to actually joyfully own such labels. I am an extremist, I am a radical, and so is any genuine disciple of Jesus. You want to know how I know? If anyone will come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, that is, be willing to die, and follow me. As a matter of fact, he must take up his cross daily, as Luke would record, and follow me. Your discipleship is only ever radical, is only ever extreme if you're a Christian. Own it and rejoice in it and think of how good this could be. You're having a conversation, oh, those extremist so-and-sos doing this, oh, I'm an extremist. What? What do you mean? Funny you should ask, let me explain it to you. Wonderful evangelistic opportunity. Own the label, people, be radical, be an extremist, it's a, a good label for us to have. Secondly, uh, it's easy, and I recognise this in myself, to think that the best way I care for my children is to keep them comfortable. That's at odds with my genuine discipleship, because I follow the Son of Man who has nowhere to lay his head, and who says, let the dead bury their own dead. It would be hypocritical of me to teach my children by my action that they are to have comfort when I also want them to be followers of Jesus. I hate it when it happens, one of my sons comes home, they've got an invitation to a birthday party, it's on Sunday morning, they know that mum and dad are going to say no, but it kills me every time. But I'd rather have that difficulty, because I'm genuinely showing them that discipleship is costly and committed, and it's worth it. It's a... Uh, It'll be such a, I'd be such a hypocrite if I said, no, for me, I'm going to give up things to follow Jesus, but you don't have to. That'll create, well, not a healthy disciple. Finally, take great comfort in the fact that discipleship, because it's costly, because it's extreme, is something Jesus knows will be difficult. And when it is difficult, not if, but when it is difficult, prayerful reliance on God is always the first port of call. Jesus himself models this perfectly for us because he had to do it as well. In the Garden of Gethsemane, before he faced the cup of God's wrath, suffering on the cross for all our sin, three times he prays, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. Please, Father, I am committed, but is there any other way? Sadly, the answer was no, and wonderfully, the answer was no. And wonderfully, Jesus has said, but let your will be done, which needs to be the prayer of all disciples. 
When it's hard, and it will be hard, prayerful reliance on God, God, please help me give up this thing that I know in my heart of hearts is not in accordance with your will, even though it's going to hurt, even though it'll be terribly costly. Let your will be done that I might be a committed follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. To that end, let me lead us now in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that even with hard truths, they are loving truths that the Lord Jesus Christ gives to us. Thank you that by the power of your Spirit, we can be disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, teaching us the truth that discipleship is indeed costly and it requires radical commitment. We know that you enable that and you reward that. And we pray, Father, depending on you for the times or the situations that make that difficult, that you would indeed help us to let your will be done. I pray for any among us, Father, who, is, who, who are yet to become genuine disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, that this truth of your word would be convicting uh, and that you would enable genuine repentance and faith and they begin not only believing but being disciples of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.